We got a fun show coming up for you today. We've got Ryan Pyle, a TV personality, adventure motorcyclist, and Guinness World Record holder. We also have Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited talking about chain adjustment. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Today we start off with Adventure Rider Radio's Tech Talk with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Are you tired of getting on your knees with your tape measure to measure the slack in your chain? Well, get rid of it, because after today you don't need it. Grant's going to walk you through a method to set up your chain adjustment, so all you have to do is lift it up with your finger or push it up with your finger, and you're going to know dead on whether it's too loose or too tight. Hi Grant, welcome back once again. Yeah, it's great to be back here again. Well, this week we're talking about chain adjustment, and it seems to be one of those misunderstood things and uh, another thing that's hotly debated as well. Let's start with talking about why a chain needs to be adjusted. The biggest problem is that the chain itself is hundreds of bushings. The average chain is around 110 links. Every one of those links is a bushing, and it doesn't take much wear on each individual one to uh, equate to a result of a stretched chain. So the chain gets longer and longer and longer as it wears. That's normal. Modern chains are pretty good. They're well lubricated and they last pretty well, but they still do stretch. Second problem is the swing arm. The way it works, it moves up and down and changes the length of the chain from the sprocket to the rear wheel. So you get constantly changing lengths and stresses, and if it's not adjusted properly, the chain can get yanked and stretched pretty hard, and that wears it very fast. So when we're setting it up, what we're really doing is we're setting up clearances or setting up an allowance for that swing arm, right? And, and as it wears, we're adjusting for that chain getting longer, so to speak. That's right, yeah. The chain and the sprockets also wear as well. The sprockets don't wear at quite the same rate. And if you replace your chain once a week, you'll find that the sprockets will last almost forever. It's the chain actually getting longer and the sprockets not changing the distance between the tooth that causes wear on the sprockets. Now, just as not all motorcycles are created equally, all motorcycles will have different specifications for the slack in their chain. Now, I did recently read one article that gave a standard amount of slack for all motorcycles of, I think it was 15 to 25 millimeters, but that can't be right, can it? No, it can't. Uh, what is correct about that statement is that if you have a rigid suspension system where the rear wheel doesn't move up and down so that the chain distances between the two sprockets never changes half an inch or 15 to 25 millimeters I wouldn't I would actually 25 millimeters is pushing I'd say 15 to 20 is correct the correct slack for a fixed position chain is 15 to 20 millimeters half an inch three quarters of an inch that's correct but for every motorcycle it's absolutely wrong there is no motorcycle that that is perfectly correct for unless you do it at the point where the front sprocket the swing arm pivot and the rear axle are in a dead straight line and that's where people go wrong. If you check the chain adjustment, it's half an inch, 15 millimeters. As it's sitting there, that's great, except that it's not because as soon as you push down on the suspension, 
the rear wheel actually moves farther away from the front sprocket, which takes up all of that slack. So you can have a bike that's got lots of rear suspension travel, and at a relaxed position, you've got 15 millimeters of play. Wonderful. Push down on the suspension, and it's tight as a bowstring, and you've just destroyed your chain and possibly the front uh, transmission sprocket bearing. And that's really expensive because you've got to take the motor part to do that. And what if we're running it too loose? Too loose is not as big a problem as running it too tight. Running it too tight is absolutely a no-no. Too loose, well, if it's a little loose, it's going to flap around, it's going to hit things, and it's going to catch and wear, but it's not fatal in any way. It's just too loose, and it can cause wear marks on various things. I mean, if it's dragging on the ground, we have a different problem, and you'll find that the bike has more snatch. In other words, you shut the throttle off, and there's a big lurch as the chain catches up. So you don't want it loose because that makes the bike unpleasant to ride. But it's much better to have it loose than tight. If in doubt, go loose. And just to be clear, everyone realizes if it's really loose and it comes off, that could be obviously something very, very serious. Oh, yes. that's yeah. You could lock up the front sprocket. You could lock up the rear sprocket. You can lock up the whole wheel. That can get really ugly. Don't ask me how I know. Which begs the question, why don't manufacturers put the, the uh, drive sprocket in line? I think there's one. Husqvarna, I think, does it on some of their bikes. If not all of them, I'm not sure. Um, but has, has it lined yeah. up with the pivot for the swing arm? Why wouldn't they all do that? It's really hard, technically very difficult. You have to run the swing arm inside the motor and run a shaft inside the swing arm pivot. And that, it's technically very complex. And you can do it on a dirt bike. Doing it on a street bike, I wouldn't even want to think of the difficulties in doing it. For one thing, getting the engine and everything positioned and designed in such a way that you can get that transmission shaft in exactly the right spot is very difficult. You start looking at a lot of bikes and you'll find that there's a lot of variance in exactly where that transmission sprocket is. Okay, so let's look at the actual procedure then. If someone's reading their manual, it'll tell them how much chain deflection that they should have. But in the manuals, I find that there, there's real vague references to how you're supposed to measure this. Some say on the side stand, some say on the center stand. Well, well, that's two different animals right there. Can you run through the procedure now of how you think we should be setting up our chain? Okay, the, the manual, if it's clear enough on how it's written and sometimes they are and sometimes they're not, it is correct for that bike. I mean, the manufacturers, I mean, you always have to remember, they're not stupid. They designed a whole motorcycle, so surely they can tell you how to adjust your chain correctly. And in theory, it is roughly correct. However, if you've changed shocks, if you've got a set, pair, set of saddlebags with a bunch of stuff in them, um, all kinds of variances can mean that the factory recommendation isn't correct. And it's very often... Where you run into trouble is you check it on the side stand, for instance, and you do a check and, yep, you got your 15 millimeters, that's lovely. But if you put your bike up on a center stand and spin the rear wheel, you'll find as you check the chain tension as the wheel spins, that chain tension varies from maybe very tight to extremely loose if the chain is worn unevenly. And chains commonly do. It's not unusual for that. Uh, when the chain's brand new, it should be exactly even all the way around as you spin the wheel. If it's not, that means that one of your sprockets is out of round, and that you want to get sorted quickly, because that can cause you lots of grief down the road. So if you've got the bike on the center stand and you spin the wheel, you first of all want to check for the tightest point in the chain travel, and that's where you would check the chain slack, not at the loosest point, at the tightest point. Remember, tight is bad, loose is okay. 
So start with that. So we get the bike up into position. We roll the wheel around and uh, we find that spot where the, where the chain is clearly the tightest. That's our measuring point. That's where you start. Yes, correct. From there, the trick is, is the wheel in alignment with the rest of the bike? In other words, does the front wheel lead the rear wheel? Is the rear wheel straight in relation to the front wheel? And I know the first reaction everybody's thinking is, well, yeah, but the front wheel turns. Well, not when you're driving down the road. The front wheel is straight and the rear wheel should be exactly in line. There's a lot of methods for making sure the rear wheel is in alignment. And the first one you're going to think of is, oh, well, there's marks on the swing arm. Well, yes, there are. However, remember that when you look at your swing arm, you'll see that it's welded up from a bunch of components and it's mounted into a pivot, which is made up of a bunch of components and the whole frame and everything is a whole bunch of pieces welded up theoretically perfectly. We all know what happened to theory. It just doesn't happen. So hopefully it's pretty good, but if it's not, and I've seen a lot of bikes that can be as much out as one whole notch on the adjustment marks. So you need to align the rear wheel right up front. That's the first thing you want to do. Is the rear wheel aligned with the front and do the marks coincide with that alignment? You can go onto the internet and you'll see there's ways of doing it with boards and string and all the rest of it. But I've always found that you can actually do it by eye. Get down on your hands and knees behind the bike at 90 degrees to the bike. So you've got your head on your side, looking down from the rear wheel to the front. And if you look along the rear wheel, you'll see that the front edge of the tire and the rear edge of the tire make a line. And then you do it on both sides of the wheel, left side, right side, and you'll either be able to see the front wheel from one of them or not. And if you can't see the front wheel at all from either, it's probably pretty straight. And if you move your head maybe an inch out of alignment so that you can see just, just barely see the front wheel, you'll see the amount that you're offset. And it should be the same on both sides because the rear wheel is always fatter than the front. So have a play with that and you'll see what I mean. It's, it's fairly obvious once you get down there and start looking. Just sight from the front edge of the rear wheel to the rear edge of the rear wheel down to the front on both sides of the bike and see if it looks straight in relation to the front wheel. What about using the chain for the same thing, looking along the chain lane? Again, you're assuming that everything is aligned perfectly, that the rear wheel is, in, is dead center in the swing arm, which is dead center in relation to the engine. And you're also trying to look down a chain, which is really difficult to see a very, very slight curve in it. Yeah, if it's really out, you can see it. But if it's a tiny, tiny bit out, boy, you've got to have better eyes than I do to see it. Okay. So once we get it set up, we figure that we've got the wheel lined. Now we're going to have to make some sort of uh, markings on this now to override the factory ones. Correct. I always pick one side or the other. It doesn't really matter which. And say, right, that's the correct side. Now take a chisel and put a whack on the other side. And that's your amount out from one notch to the other. Do it in the chain adjuster itself, not on the swing arm. Do it on the adjuster because each adjuster only has one mark on it. So make a new mark in the adjuster and you're good to go. How often do you find this, Grant? Is, is almost every bike out? No, I would say probably, well, I would used to say that it was about 80 or 90%. Today it's more like 10 or 20%. So it's, it's gotten better. Yeah, the tolerances have tightened up a lot. When the Japanese bikes first came in, the tolerances were well, <laughs> generous to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, and old British bikes were a joke. But manufacturing tolerances have tightened up a lot in the last 30, 40 years. So it's not bad, but it's a good thing to check and then you know it's straight. 
if nothing else, it's good peace of mind. Okay, so we've got our spot where the chain is the tightest. We've got our rear wheel straight. Where do we go from here? Next thing is to loosen the axle and make it good and loose. Loosen the chain adjusters a bit and then give the rear wheel a good kick forward. Hang on to the back of the seat or something so that you don't kick the bike right off the center stand. I've seen that done. Now we've got the wheel well forward and from now what we're going to do is snug up the axle so that it's snug but if you turn the chain adjusters, the wheel moves relatively easily. So what we're doing by doing that is taking up the slack in the whole system. So as you tighten the adjusters and pull the wheel back, there is no slack. If you're sloppy about it and the axle is loose and you just pull the adjusters back to about the right spot and then just tighten the axle, first thing you do is you hit the throttle and the chain pulls hard on the rear wheel and everything moves so that there's no slack. So we're going to eliminate that slack in the beginning. So we're pulling back on the axle adjusting tensioners and keep checking your tight spot on the chain until you've got it to where you think it's perfect. So you've now got the chain tension correct. You've taken up all the slack because you're pulling the wheel back on the tensioner. So there's no play in the system. And this one gets tricky. A lot of people at this point just tighten the axle. And an easy way to do it is just to put a wrench on it and pull backwards because you're behind the bike. By pulling backwards, you're now pulling on the axle and rotating the wheel in the system and you've introduced some more play. All wrong. So what you want to do is, first of all, with a drum brake, put the drum brake on. If you've got a disc brake, it doesn't matter. But if you've got a drum brake, put the brake on and that will center the brake shoes in the wheel so that you have both shoes contacting the wheel at exactly the same time. So it gives you better, solider braking and it locks the wheel in place. Put the wrench on the axle and pull it towards the front of the bike, not to the back, to the front of the bike. And again, you're eliminating and helping eliminate more slack in the whole system so that when you hit the throttle, the wheel doesn't move because you've taken up all the slack. Make sure it's good and tight. That's it. It's not that hard. There's, there's nothing really complicated about it once you understand the basic principles. And I would say the, the things to think about are the chain doesn't stretch evenly. Your wheel may not be dead straight. Let's get that straight. And then let's get out all the possible slack in the wheel so that the system doesn't move as soon as you hit the throttle. And finally, on the drum brakes, get that brake working to its best ability by centering it and locking it up. So when we're talking about the chain adjustment, we're saying looser is better than being too tight. Absolutely. Let's say in, on my bike, for instance, the, the range is 35 to 45 millimeters. What should I be aiming for? Should I be aiming at the high side and going for that 45 millimeter deflection all the time? Once you get good at it, you can aim for right on. It just takes a little bit of practice to get the feel of it and how you make everything work and just making sure it's aligned. I would go, if your spec is, say, 15 to 25, which I think is a very reasonable spec, I would aim for 20 to 25, just a touch on the loose side. Of course, make sure you've lubricated the chain before you start all of this. And how often afterwards are we checking the adjustment? Depends on the bike. I mean, it used to be that we would literally check the chain adjustment every day before you go for a ride. Today, you can easily go a week or two, depending on how far you're riding. So every 500 to 1,000 miles or 1,500 kilometers, something like that, is probably quite reasonable to check it but just do check it and make sure you're doing it the same way 
And it could also be terrain, right? If we're riding a lot of dirt stuff or even some off-road stuff, then we might want to check more often rather than just following much the mileage. Much more often. Yeah, much more often. Okay, so we've learned to adjust the chain properly using the manufacturer's specifications. But as I would mentioned earlier, some of the manufacturer's instructions can be fairly vague. Or, as you'd mentioned, if we changed the suspension or we'd added weight to it, we've thrown everything out. We need to get back to square one. How do we go back to ground zero and make sure we have the right measurement right from the very start? How do we establish a baseline to measure our chain adjustment from to make sure we are dead-on accurate? Okay, the easy way... Ha is to have a very large friend who, <laughs> when the bike is off the stand, he either sits or leans on the back end of the bike, maybe onto a rack, and pushes until you're satisfied with a ruler, using a measuring stick, uh, yardstick's great, and make sure that the front sprocket, swing arm pivot, and rear axle are dead straight. We're talking about lining up the counter shaft, the swing arm, and the axle all together so that it's at the point where the, the axle itself is the farthest it ever gets in the arc. If you think of the way the swing arm moves, it's the farthest it ever gets from the counter shaft. And then at that point, you still have to roll it around until you find the tight spot in the chain. Then you're ready to measure your deflection. You may have to take off a front cover in order to get access to see the front sprocket, but make sure you can do that. The harder way, if you don't have a very large friend, is to take off the shock or shocks and lift it up with a strap. If your suspension's fairly soft and it's not too far, you can put a strap around a rack and through the wheel and tighten the strap up really tight, you know, a ratchet strap of some kind, until the suspension is adequately compressed so that you get that straight line. Then you can check your chain adjustment and make sure it's correct. And with getting those pivots lined up and your axle lined up with your counter shaft on your transmission, you're saying that's the 15 to 25 millimeter deflection that you would want because you wouldn't necessarily go by your manufacturer's um, specifications at that point, would you? No, absolutely not. The manufacturer's specification is assuming the bike is on the stand and with everything dangling down. You'll find that always the rear wheel axle is below the, the straight line that the front sprocket and the swing arm pivot make. So it's the chain is looser by quite a bit at that point. Uh, a dirt bike, it could be 50 millimeters play at that point quite easily in order to make sure that when the suspension compresses at that tight point, you still have 15 to 25 millimeters. Okay, so clearly we don't want to take the big guy everywhere we go, and we don't want to ratchet it down everywhere we are to check our chain adjustment and make sure it's correct. How do we set up that reference point so that we don't have to go through this, so we can check it without using a measuring tape or a yardstick or anything? First off, get it right, and then put the bike in the normal position, either side stand or center stand, where you would want to check the chain. And now, what is the play? How much play have you got? I really like it when you can grab the chain and push up and your finger lines up with something like a chain guard, for instance, or maybe the chain just touches the swing arm or some other component of the system. Then you've got a mark. Um, on my last bike with the chain, all I had to do is pull up on the chain and it was just in line with the bottom of the um, protector for the chain. Perfect. It was dead easy. Now that happened to be about 45 millimeters of play because it was a dirt bike. No problem. Now I know that I want 45 millimeters of play and a quick pull in the tight spot and it aligns with that particular spot on my swing arm system and I'm done. 
That's it. I don't have to mess around. Okay, so this is great. I mean, it makes it very easy. Basically, what we're doing is we're following your steps. We're making sure we've got the correct adjustment right off the bat. We've standardized everything. We know the chain's set up right. Then you flop the bike onto the side stand, and you look at it sitting there, and you reach down and with your finger and lift it up to a point. Maybe slide your finger along. Yeah, you're going to get a little greasy, but you'll live. You slide your finger along until a point where you can get it where your finger is pushing the chain up, and it just contacts the swing arm. And then look up from your finger and see what mark is there. Maybe even have to put a little tiny mark there, a bit of paint or something like that. And you'll know no matter what, no matter where you stop, if you pick up the chain with your finger and just lift it up to the swing arm and it touches the swing arm there, you know that it's adjusted properly. No measuring, no messing around, no lining other things up. You can do a quick check in the parking lot there. Um, Likely, if you've done it right to begin with, I mean, you're not going to find that it's too tight. But you can certainly check and see if it's loosened off too much. But remember that even when we're using this method, we still want to roll around until we get the chain to the tightest spot, right? I mean, that's always, that's a standard thing no matter what you do. You always got to make sure that chain is at its tightest point for you to check to make sure the deflection is correct. But that's great. So we just use our finger and a little mark on the swing arm. Boom, done. Yeah, yeah, it's dead easy. You know, you may have to have it so you pull down on the top of this chain, but it's better to do it on the bottom. Whatever works, whatever gives you a system, push up on the chain, put two fingers in between the chain and swing arm, something, anything that's easily repeatable and consistent. Makes life a lot easier. Following your instructions, Grant, it takes something that can be seemingly complicated and really make it quite simple. Once you've got your reference point, it's dead easy. Absolutely. That's it. You got it. Good to go. We've, now we know how to adjust the chain. We've got our chain adjusted upright. What about wear? How do we check the chain and how do we check our sprockets for wear? And when do we replace it? That's pretty straightforward. If you go to the back of the bike, the center of the sprocket at the back, so you've got the sprocket is however tall, you're going to exactly the farthest point of the sprocket at the back of the bike, pull the chain off the sprocket. If the chain lifts about half the height of a tooth, it's past worn out. You should be a little less than half worn out before you replace the chain. And then you look at the sprocket, and if you can see any sign of hooking, like each tooth has a profile, and the profile should be exactly the same on both sides of every tooth. If you can see any, and I mean any sign, that it's not identical, then the sprocket is starting to hook, and it's worn out. Replace it. Absolutely never use a sprocket that's got any sign of hooking whatsoever with a new chain, because you will destroy the chain in no time. Yeah, I really like that way of checking for Warren chain. I know there's other ways to measure between links, but that gets very complicated. It's oh, a big yeah. procedure. Nobody's going to do that. No, no. Yeah, it's way too hard. Just grab the chain, pull it back, and when it's brand new, you can hardly lift it at all. And as it wears, you'll see it's starting to get loose. And yeah, I can lift it off. By the time it gets halfway, you've done in your complete chain and sprockets. They're all finished. You have to replace the whole set. Depends on your budget how soon you do it. Do you recommend changing the sprockets every time you change the chain? No, I recommend changing the chain more often. You can get more life out of the whole system than if you replace the chain a little early than if you replace it later. If you replace the chain just a little bit early before it's gone, like when it's quarter to a third of a tooth at most, and there's still no sign of hooking in the sprocket, replace the chain and you're ready to go. And then you'll get some more life out of the sprockets because this chain of sprocket set can be quite expensive on some of the bikes. So it's definitely worthwhile doing. Yeah, for sure. New sprockets are almost the price of a chain. So you can Mm -hmm. go through, if you can get two chain and one set of sprockets, then you've done pretty good. 
Okay, Grant. Every modern chain nowadays has an O-ring or an X-ring in it that seals the lubricant inside the roller, and it's supposed to be sealed for life. And if that's the case, if that lubricant is in there, permanently lubricating the chain for life, why are we oiling the outside of the modern chain? Uh, modern chains with O-rings or X-rings or whatever they've got are internally lubricated. The lubricant you're putting on is not lubricating the bushing inside the chain. It's Number one, it's preventing rust. And number two, it's providing a little bit of lubrication for those O-rings from the outside so they're not running dry. And it's allowing a little bit of lubrication between the plates. So as it rotates around the sprocket, there's a little bit of lube there. And the oil provides a cushioning effect on the sprocket tooth when the chain roller hits it. So rather than metal to metal, you've got a little bit of oil in between. Kind of same thing as principle is inside your engine. A little bit of lubricant makes a big difference. Having said that, if you're riding off-road, especially in sand, a dry chain is good because the lubricant makes a lovely grinding paste mixed with fine powdered sand. It wears out your chain in no time. So for sand, dry. For dirt, on average, mud and stuff like that, a little bit of lube, but not a lot. For street bikes, keep it wet. You should always be looking a little bit damp. Things like the Scott chain oiler, for instance, are great because they drip a special chain lube steadily, constantly, and your chain is always lubricated and it never goes dry. One thing I should mention, at the end of a ride, lubricate your chain. Take your helmet off, lube your chain. Don't put the chain lube on before you go for a ride. At the end of a ride, your chain is nice and warm. You spray the lube on, it soaks in, it dries. The, the uh, solvent that's the carrier for the lubricant evaporates. And next morning, there's nothing to fling off. If you lube the chain cold and then immediately go for a ride, 90% of that lube gets flung off anyway, so it's kind of pointless. You've been listening to Adventure Rider Radio's Tech Talk. That was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and I'm Jim Martin. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveler, motorcyclist, and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. China. Over 22 provinces. Over 1.35 billion people. A tourist destination? Not in the past. Mysterious? Interesting? Yeah. There's a guy named Ryan Pyle that rode his motorcycle all the way around China with his brother Colin. And they set a Guinness World Record for it, riding around China on motorcycles. Today we talk with Ryan Pyle. Ryan Pyle is actually from Toronto, Canada, but he's living in Shanghai and has for the past 10 years. I find it very interesting because you would expect that he would have some sort of family connection to China or some sort of uh, business connection to China, and that's what drew him there. But that's not the case. And when you talk to Ryan, you sort of get the feeling that the real reason he's in China is because deep down, he's an adventurer. He's the type of guy who looks for a challenge and chases it down. I talked with Ryan while he was in Shanghai, China, over Skype. And we talked about his Middle Kingdom ride, his Guinness World Record, motivation, life, and a bunch of other things. My name's Ryan Pyle. I was uh, born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And I have been a photographer in the past, but now I make uh, adventure travel television shows. How do you end up in China? You grew up in Toronto, and then you find yourself living in Shanghai. 
So I graduated from the University of Toronto in 2001 and moved to China and basically um, have been living in Shanghai ever since. And uh, when I moved to China in 2001, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I began documenting China. I taught myself how to be a photographer. And then for the first 10 years I lived in China, I um, worked for the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, Fortune, Forbes, all the big major magazines as a photographer. Uh, and it wasn't until kind of 2010, 2011 that I made the switch into uh, adventure television. Ryan, what was it like growing up for you? Was it a, an incredible experience, completely different from everyone else in Toronto that was all around you at the time? Was there something unique about it that drives you to go and live in a place like China and do these incredible adventures? Was there something just completely different about the way you grew up? I don't think so. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, grew up, I guess, you know, the comfortable Canadian middle-class life, you know, had two parents that, uh, you know, gave, gave us everything that we could have wanted. I had my brother as well. I lived with my brother. And then, and then I guess when I went to university of Toronto, I, I played basketball. Um, I played basketball in high school and I also played for the university of Toronto varsity blues. So I always had this kind of competitiveness in me, I suppose, uh, this desire to kind of work hard and then, when I was at the University of Toronto, I just uh, I started taking a few classes about, you know, Asia or China in general, and I just felt like there was this whole part of the world that I hadn't seen yet, this whole part of the world that I was kind of missing. And I really felt like that that kind of um, started something. It got me thinking about, um, you know, traveling more, seeing more of the world, because up until kind of university, my whole life had just been playing sports. And as my university career winded down, I wasn't good enough to play professionally or or, you know, in the Olympics or anything like that. So as I finished graduating, I had this huge void in my life and I didn't know what to fill it with. So after taking a few courses on China, I just said, you know what, I'm going to go travel for a bit. And I went to China and I liked it so much. I just ended up living here. And then once I got here, I kind of figured out a few other things along the way, but that was kind of the initial, the initial point. So really it was taking the courses that got you interested in China in particular. Absolutely. Yes. I, you know, I have no background in filmmaking, no background in photography, uh, both things that I do professionally. Um, I have, you know, it was just, it was really actually when I give this presentation uh, at some schools and things, when I do my talk, uh, it was a second year introduction to China class uh, that I took the reason uh, that it fit my schedule. I didn't really have any desire. I just randomly was picking classes and I needed some point so that I could get my Friday off or something like that. And uh, it was this introduction to China course. And I took it and, and uh, didn't think much of it at the time, but it totally blew me away. And then the next year I took another China course. And then in my last year, I took two Chinese courses in, uh, about China. And it was just, uh, I don't know, it just inspired me. China, for many of us, is so culturally different. Can you describe for us what you saw when you first arrived? Well, I did a great thing when I first arrived. Um, I didn't arrive. I arrived with the goal of traveling around the country. So I flew, I flew from Toronto to Hong Kong. Um, and then from Hong Kong, I crossed over by land into southern China, which is, which is known as Shenzhen. And that's the part of China that borders directly onto Hong Kong. Even though Hong Kong is part of China, it's, there's still a proper border there. And then once I got into, into Shenzhen, which is geographically in the southeast, um, I worked my way up to Shanghai, which is kind of in the Middle Eastern region of China, and then up to Beijing. And then once I got to Beijing, I went all the way west. It's about 6,000 kilometers. So I went all the way west to the border of China and Pakistan. 
Uh, and then from there, I went I went down into Tibet and I went to Mount Everest base camp. And then I went all the way back to uh, Hong Kong. And that took three months. And that was like my first experience traveling abroad, really. That was my first um, experience being in a country where I really didn't speak the language. I mean, I'd been to Europe before, but everyone kind of speaks a little bit of English there. Uh, China in 2001 was much different than China is today. Uh, so that was kind of my first experience of being alone. That was the first time I've been alone for three months. And it, and it just brought about all these amazing um, experiences. Like I really enjoyed being on the road. I traveled by local you know, public transportation. I took trains. I took buses. I met people along the way. And it was such a, an uplifting experience and such an eye-opening experience to how you know, there's billions of people on this planet that don't live the same way that Canadians do. And, and, you know, whether you're in Brazil or whether you're in Saudi Arabia or whether you're in China or India, um, you know, all these people consider, uh, you know, their way of life to be the local way and the right way. So, uh, you know, having that chance to come from a relatively sheltered life, let's, let's be honest, like the Canadian life is pretty sheltered. We have our health care, you know, um, you know, we live in a safe country. We don't have to deal with war. We don't have to deal with famine. Uh, we don't have to deal with disease. Uh, you know, coming from that really safe environment, being thrown into rural China where things are quite safe but very different, uh, was really kind of exciting. And it gave me, it filled that void that I mentioned. You know, I was, I was missing my basketball. I was missing this challenge every day. And, and I think traveling in China filled that challenge. You know, I had to communicate with people. I had to figure out when the buses were leaving. I had to figure out where the hotels were, what to eat, how to eat, how to ask for what I wanted to eat, um, how to get on the right train. You know, everything's not in English. So I loved it. Uh, most people might, you know, crumble at those kinds of challenges, but I was just embracing it. And it, and it took me to this, you know, other level where this is kind of what I wanted to do with my life. Okay, how do I do that now? Do I become a travel writer or do I learn how to be a photographer? And then those kinds of desires led into kind of photojournalism and then now making longer travel adventure television shows. Do you and did you, when you arrived, speak Chinese at all? No, no, I didn't. So when I arrived in China I didn't, uh, in 2001, I didn't speak any Chinese. And now I speak kind of an intermediate level, which is, which is kind of bad. Actually, I should speak pretty advanced since, uh, since I've lived here for so long. But, um, but no, I didn't speak uh, Chinese at all. I had a little phrase book and that was it. And did you find it hard to learn as you were going along? It was, I mean, it was impossible to learn within the three months that I did my first trip around China. Um, it was impossible. I, you know, I would try to, it's such a tonal language, you know, you'd look, you think you'd look, you'd look and you'd see a, an R and you'd think that is a R, you know, it starts with R, and, but it doesn't. And then there would be a few tones in there that would take the word in different directions. And there's just no way that you could properly communicate with people. So you use a lot of hand motions, you know, and, and you kind of just get by. And that was just a lot of fun. And do you keep a journal when you're, when you're traveling around? Absolutely, yeah. So actually, I'm just writing a book now about my first trip to China. So this three-month journey uh, that I did by, by kind of bus and by train, um, I did keep a very good journal that whole trip. And I've been constantly writing this book for the last kind of 10, 10 12 years, and I've never been able to finish it. But now I'm actually just going to really settle into it now and try to finish it um, before Christmas because it's hilarious and there's just so many funny stuff that happens. I mean, people like people like our motorcycle books. Um, uh, but you know, it's a lot about biking and a lot about this kind of life, but this was, um, this was kind of about being what it's like to be on a bus for 22 hours through the mountains, you know, with a bunch of chain smoking, um, Chinese people, you know, so it's, it takes it totally in a different direction. 
Ryan, in 2010, you did an amazing trip around China, completely circumnavigating China, and you called it the Middle Kingdom Ride. Tell us about that and how that idea came about. Yeah, so we, we called it the Middle Kingdom Ride because China's historical name uh, is the Middle Kingdom. Uh, its Chinese name was Zhongguo, so it, it thought of itself as the Middle Kingdom between the um, between the North Asians and the South Asians. And, and you know, Colin and I were both, Colin's my brother, uh, also from Toronto. We were just sitting in New York uh, one time. I had come from Shanghai to New York to meet some photography clients, and he was there uh, to meet with some banking people because he is in the finance industry. And we were sitting in Central Park, you know, just thinking, man, you know, we're almost, I had just turned 30. He was, he was 28, I think, or something. And he, and we were just thinking like, man, we gotta, you know, we gotta do a little more. We gotta see more of the world. And, and Colin was really tired of the finance industry. And he was like, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and uh, sell my house. And I think you and I should like have some great adventure in China because he hadn't really he hadn't really come out to see me much because he'd been so busy so so I said that's great you know that's a real life changing decision let's come to china let's do something fun and he and then you know we were talking about it. he's like okay let's go trekking in tibet or let's you know climb a mountain somewhere and then eventually we just kind of settled on this idea of of riding motorcycles and and going on a motorcycle trip and then we're like okay let's we'll do a two week trip and we'll we'll do a little circle around shanghai or something like that and then it became a little bit more ambitious and this was all while we were just sitting in Central Park. And then we were like, wow, we should try to ride a motorcycle all the way around China. That would be something to remember. Um, and then that was really it. He went back to Toronto. I went back to Shanghai. Uh, and this was March 2010. And, you know, we kind of convinced our wives that this would be an interesting thing. It would be an interesting idea, which was not easy, by the way. Uh, and then and then again, it's the planning of the trip, the, you know, trying to get a corporate partner. How does that work? You know, like, do you just call up someone at Ducati or BMW and ask them for a bike and ask them to give you money? Like, you know, what's that process like? What do they expect? What do they want? We all we kind of had to learn that. And we wanted to leave kind of middle of August because China's so big um, geographically that if we left Shanghai in the middle of August, we would come through Tibet in late September. Uh, which is about as late as you want to be kind of on the roads in Tibet because it can get quite cold up on the high passes, you know, at 6,000 meters above sea level, which is kind of 18,000 feet. Um, a lot of those passes get snowed in, in the, you know, in late kind of mid-October. So we, we needed to leave in August and it just wasn't enough time to organize everything. And a lot of the corporate partners that we, you know, reached out to thought we were crazy and that we wouldn't accomplish it. And, and we tried to also think about filming it and, for myself as a long-time photographer, I didn't want to do something so epic uh, and not record it and try to share it with as many people as possible. So we tried to figure out, you know, ways of filming it. Um, and that was kind of, you know, what happened between March and, and mid-August was just the planning and the trying to figure out how to pay for it because these trips are incredibly expensive. Like, you know, I can tell you 65 days on the road in China, lots of off-roading. You know, our gas bill our gas bill was like $12,000 um, just on fuel. And we had an SUV with us as well because we had to carry all our camera equipment um, because we were, we were making a real production. So, you know, we were really just trying to figure out how to get all these costs covered and whether it would be something that we could actually afford to do. 
you know, many people will look at what you do and say, oh, well, that's easy for them. Look at they had all those corporate sponsors. But it's interesting to hear you talk about how you didn't just stumble onto these. These weren't just dumped in your lap. You went and fought tooth and nail and probably had a lot of doors slammed in your face and a lot of phones hung up and emails ignored while you were trying to raise some interest from the corporate sponsors. And then, like you said, they, uh, they're actually saying that they don't believe that you could do it. How did it end up coming about to be a TV series? Is it something that happened sort of afterwards by you pushing, or did you manage to achieve the idea and the planning before you left on the trip? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point with regards to the corporate partners. Nothing fell in our lap. Nothing was easy. I have a list at home of you know 200 companies that I thought might want to work with us, from sunglasses to clothing to oil, engine oil to, you know, uh, mobile phones, uh, motorcycles, the tires, the whole thing. Um, and actually, like, no one gave us any funding. So, and that was like six months of me calling people every day. So that was incredibly hard. With the, with regards to the television show, I, I kind of knew how to do it. And I kind of knew what I wanted it to be. Um, and I And I knew how to plan it. But we went to the National Geographics and the Discovery Channels and all these kinds of people. And they all just said no, like they weren't interested at all. Um, you know, one, you know, one, um, one, one, one broadcaster that I won't mention the name of, you know, asked us to bring along a Chinese celebrity with us because then at least people would watch the show. Like, <laughs> like two Canadians trying to muck their way around China wasn't going to be interesting enough. You know, this is where we are these days with television production. It's uh you know, it's all about, you know, reality TV. It's all about having eight personalities fight with each other. It's all about, um, you know, having celebrity in an awkward position or whatever. And and our idea of just doing something that would be inspirational, that would be aspirational, wasn't good enough. Um, and then knowing that, knowing that going in, we still decided that we were going to film it and, uh, and that we were going to make a television show out of it somehow. And... Um, and in the end, once we completed our journey, it was actually a year of sitting around waiting for to find the right partner to come in and help us actually make the show, uh, edit it and add music and all the things that you need to do to make a, a proper um, broadcast-ready television show, and then actually sell that on to Travel Channel, which, uh, which are our broadcast partners uh, for the Tough Rides, or the Middle Kingdom Ride and the India Ride, which are now branded uh, on Travel Channel as the Tough Ride series. And, um, so yeah, you can, you can see that nothing was set in stone before we went on our trip. Uh, nothing was set in stone while we were on our trip and no one helped us after we were done our trip. How much prep time went into planning for your route and the logistics of the trip before you left? Uh, that was actually part, that was actually the easy part, um, because I had lived in China already for nine years before we did our trip, and I'd been to every province, and I knew everything. I mean, I'd been on every road. I'd, I'd taken a bus. I'd driven my own car. I'd ridden, I'd ridden another person's motorcycle. Uh, I had friends in all of these provinces. Uh, you know, as a photographer, I was on the road every week documenting something. So that was actually the easy part, you know, figuring out what road to be in, what hotel to stay at, where there's guest houses, where there's food, where the gas stations are. That was all kind of stuff that I'd known um, that would be easy. And, and actually the logistical aspects of it were, were, were great. And, you know, we had our bad weather, we had our bad rain, we had a few breakdowns along the way, but, but as far as kind of getting around the country, we never got lost or, or too confused about where we had to go and what had to be done. 
So being very familiar with the areas that you were riding then, were there any discoveries that you made um, on the adventure about China or things that surprised you? Well, the the two things. I mean, I think the first thing that was really inspiring and really surprising was the way that Colin was viewing China. So, like I said, I was very familiar with a lot of these places, and this was my chance to show Colin, my brother, what China was like, and and I got to show him all the places that I liked best or all the places that I wanted to visit. And it was really inspiring seeing him look at these places for the first time and, and hearing his comments and feedback about um, about these places that I love so much. So that was just wonderful. Uh, and, then, and then the second part is there was uh, two roads that we took that I'd never been on, and one was the G219 highway from northwest Xinjiang, which is kind of the northwest part of China near Pakistan, to southwest uh, Tibet, which is actually on the border with Tibet uh, and India and Nepal. And there's one road that goes along uh, this bit, and it's called the G219 Highway, and it's it's kind of a few thousand kilometers long. Uh, there's like no villages, there's no gas stations, there's no mobile phone connection, there's really nothing, and it's all just dirt. And the average altitude of the road is kind of about 5,000 meters above sea level, which is about 16,000 feet, uh, which is uh, remarkable in itself. And this was um, a road that I had never been on before, and didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. Um, and it was spectacular. It was, you know, easily one of the highlights uh, of our journey. Some of the footage that I've seen from your shows is just incredible. This beautiful scenery. And I'm curious, were you alone or are there people always around you? Because 1.35 billion people is a lot of people. Uh, are there still open areas of the country? Well, that was the, you know, it's funny you say that. This was one of the driving factors for me wanting to make a television show about China. Um, yes, it's a motorcycle show, but we wanted, I really wanted to put China on display because I feel like China gets such a bad rap. I mean, yes, we have lots of cities. Yes, they're crowded with people and yes, there's pollution. Um, there's a lot of manufacturing and all these kinds of things that coal is, is, a is a, you know, a big, um, a big polluter in this country as well, but oh my God, the country is huge and there's so much to see and do. And there's so many beautiful green grasslands and untouched mountain scenery and epic deserts. So, you know, let's really break down the stereotypes of what we see on CNN and BBC and, and CBC every day. And let's really show people what this country is all about. And we chose a route that would take us away from a lot of the big cities and keep us in the more remote areas. And as you can see from our trailer, and I don't know if you've had a chance to watch our DVD or read our book yet. Uh, they're both available on Amazon in Canada. You know, we take the motorcycles through some of the most beautiful scenery, not just in China, but on the planet. Um, and and then, you know, the other question is, are, are there people everywhere? And the answer is no. Uh, Eastern China is very crowded, and it has the majority of China's 1.3 billion people living kind of along the East Coast, which is where a lot of the business and commerce is. But once you get inland, um, you know, maybe three, four thousand kilometers inland off the coast, maybe two thousand kilometers inland, then people, there's just no one. And that western part of China is really empty. And, you know, in some parts of our journey, there were days where we just didn't hit any traffic, uh, you know, going through small villages. And it was just really pretty. Eastern China is really tough. You know, there's lots of traffic. 
drivers. You know, it takes you two hours to get from the outskirts of a city into the city. Uh, if you've got to go around cities, you're dealing with a lot of truck traffic and things like that. It's uh, it's very difficult. But out in western China, in northern China as well, um, it's much less uh, densely populated and, and therefore uh, just heaven to ride a, a motorcycle around. And uh, this was also one of the stereotypes that we hope we kind of broke down as well. I found it quite an eye-opener. Uh, I did expect to see images, much like India. I expected to see a lot of people, a lot of traffic. And, and I know you did show some traffic, but what I was really taken aback by the vast mountains, and like you mentioned, the desert. And I'm almost drawing some similarities between Canada and China, which I didn't expect to do. When I was watching it, it seemed to me that there's obviously places like Canada that are densely populated and then areas that are widely open with few people in it. And I'm curious, for you, or for anyone for that matter, is it easy to ride in China and explore the area, or are there political or cultural barriers that make it difficult? Um, you know, I would say that China is more open for tourism now than it's ever been, and um, and it's a very free and open place to travel through. The one area that is still politically sensitive is Tibet, and you'll need a special permit to visit Tibet. But if you want to go through those deserts and grasslands that we went through in Inner Mongolia or Xinjiang, for example, um, it would be very easy. And, and it's a little bit difficult to navigate because of the Chinese language. But when you do get lost, then you get to hang out and meet people, and they will bend over backwards to help you, you know, kind of find your way, uh, even if you can't you know, speak any Chinese. The one thing that's really missing in China at the moment is um, motorcycle tourism infrastructure. And because the big bikes are so expensive, I mentioned the, the big luxury tax that the government puts on them, there, there hasn't, and, and there's also some insurance problems uh, with regards to, to motorcycles and renting motorcycles. There, ha- there hasn't really been this motorcycle rental culture pop up yet where you can fly from Toronto to Beijing and rent a motorcycle for seven days and, and go off exploring in the mountains around Beijing and up in the grasslands uh, near Beijing. And, and that, that I hope is coming because I think that'll help people, you know, see a little bit more of what Colin and I were very fortunate to, to, to experience. What did you use for accommodations? Um, you mentioned hotels or uh, did you end up camping at all? We had a wide variety of accommodation. Um, we we definitely planned to be in a big city once every kind of two to three weeks. And that was just a chance to have a proper shower and clean some clothes and stuff. Uh, the rest of the time were a mixture of kind of backpacker guest houses slash truck stop, you know, guest houses where we were sharing beds with, um, you know, truck, truck drivers and stuff like that. And then in some parts of Tibet, we had to camp. Um, because the distances were too large between, between um, you know, villages and things like that. And, you know, and in some Tibetan places, we actually stayed in villagers' homes where we, you know, lived with the family uh, in some of the more remote parts of Tibet. So, you know, you're going to see, when you watch our show or read our book, you'll, you know, you'll see a, a variety of accommodations and a variety of different interactions with people, which, uh, which I think just made our experience so much more rich you and your brother, uh, Colin, both rode the F800 GS bikes. What were the challenges of that bike choice in particular? You did mention breakdowns, but I'm not so much interested in that because that happens no matter what you choose. But what about just having the large bike? Were there, were there challenges in that? Well, you know, Colin and I really looked at this carefully, and we, we looked at a few different bikes. And, you know, do you go with a 1200 GS? And we thought that, 
that, oh, by the way, at this moment in 2010, there were only two kinds of foreign motorcycles that could be imported into China. One was a Harley Davidson and one was a BMW. So the Harley Davidson didn't have a hope. I mean, great bike, uh, but not for Tibet, you know, you know, and in the end we did about 6,000 kilometers of off-road riding uh, on the Middle Kingdom ride around China. So the Harley Davidson wasn't going to stand a chance. So it was going to be a BMW from the very beginning when it, with regards to China. And we looked at the 1200 GS and it just felt too big. Um, it just felt too big for the cities. You know, we, it's great if you're riding on, on open dirt roads, but in the cities in China where things are very congested and, and difficult, we just felt like it was too wide and too heavy. And we've also seen some other adventure shows and things like that where, you know, the bike drops and, and, you know, it takes two people to pick it up. And we didn't want to have that kind of adventure. We, we definitely want to be on smaller bikes, smaller displacement bikes. And Colin and I are both quite tall. So we looked at the 800 and we thought, you know what, this is the bike that that's going to get us through Tibet. Uh, this is this is the one that's going to get us, you know, home and back. Um, so that was kind of the decision-making process for the motorcycle. Uh, and it was unbelievable. You know, like like you said, we had some breakdowns, but any mechanical thing that you push uh, to its limit over 65 days like we did will break at some stage. But um, we really love the bike. I mean, it performs so well. It has that big front wheel which really pushes through the sand and the gravel and keeps your bike stable. Um, it's got a great front suspension. It can pretty much take everything that you throw at it. It's great in water, you know, with a lot of the river crossings we had to deal with. Um, the other great thing about the F800GS is it's got a it's got a proper chain. It's not a drive shaft, which means the chain is easy to fix if there's a problem. It's also very mechanical. It's not very electronic. It has no real onboard computer system like the 1200GS. And we felt more comfortable with that because if we felt like if the, if the 800 did have a problem, it, it wouldn't be, you know, computer-based or, or too electronic, which means we could fix it on the road. Because it's also important to know that, you know, BMW doesn't have any um, shops in China outside of Shanghai and Beijing. So if we broke down anywhere outside of Shanghai and Beijing, uh, we were screwed. So we had to rely on our kind of own wits. And there's a few problems that we run into where we have to solve it quite creatively, which are also explained in our in our show in our in our book but i think we definitely chose the right bike for the job and um and i still really kind of love the the f800 gs i think it's still just a great bike and i was in germany in july just last month um riding the new versions and they have a new adventure version with a bigger gas tank now um and it's still definitely my bike of choice the BMW F800GS uses premium fuel. What was the fuel quality availability in China? That's a really great question. So, um, of course, in the big cities where, where people drive BMWs and Audis and nice, you know, nice cars and things like that, uh, fuel quality is no problem at all. But once you get out into the sticks, we had a lot of problems with fuel quality. Um, and uh, we, pre we pretty much just had to put whatever fuel we could find into the bikes um, we didn't have any pills, you know, to, to help, um, you know, make the fuel better. We didn't, at one stage in Tibet, we were using a woman's nylon, a woman's stocking, um, to help filter all the shit out of the gas that they were putting in the fuel, uh, because we did have some bad fuel in Tibet. But for the most part, we were, we were using decent fuel, but just at a lower grade, not, not as premium as you'd like it to be. But we were lucky when we did finish the trip, we did have the bike stripped down and, and, and kind of assessed and things like that and, um, and fixed up. And, and the guys, you know, said, you know, the, the poor quality fuel, 
uh, didn't hurt the bike um, in any way, shape, or form, actually. So we, we thought we were quite lucky on that. What an incredible adventure. The book and video would be well worthwhile picking up yeah. for anyone interested in motorcycle adventure. You're doing this for a living now. You're making these documentaries for a living. What will we see from Ryan Pyle next? So um, after we did the China the China show, uh, it took a really long time to kind of get that show out, and it was our first. And, um, and then Colin and I also thought, you know what, this is pretty fun it's really nice being able to ride a motorcycle around a country and 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 um and we should do india next and and we thought that was another kind of big confusing country that people probably don't really know too much about and and then colin and i did um tough rides india or also the india ride uh so that was 60 days uh 14,000 kilometers around india and that was done in 2012 and that show has already been broadcast um all around the world and there's a book out already and the DVD is coming soon and um, next I'm just uh, Colin now by the way has retired from the motorcycle television uh, work and he has gone back he lives in London England now and he's got a small company um, it's a startup business that sells coffee and that he's working very hard on so I'm moving forward with the adventure motorcycle production so Tough Ride Season 3 will be, uh, it's looking like Brazil, uh, and then maybe Season 4 will be Russia. So I'm going to continue kind of doing these motorcycle trips through these kind of developing countries, these brick countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, Indonesia, um, you know, and maybe also look at some other countries that people don't know much about. Maybe I'll, I'll try to do one in Saudi Arabia or Iran. Our broadcast partners, our travel channel, and they seem very um, supportive of this kind of concept that that I'm going to, you know, continue to keep pushing. So, my hope is that I'll be able to do one one uh, adventure motorcycle show uh, per year. Uh, you know, and each show takes about two months to produce in the field, and then about six months planning. On top of that, I'm also making other television shows. So, I did a show last year where I trekked all through Tibet. It's called Extreme Trek Sacred Mountains. That's coming out next year. Uh, I, did, I did a show for Discovery Channel uh, all about this one province in China. That's coming out in September. So I'm getting a lot more television work, which is great. Uh, it was an unexpected kind of benefit of doing the Middle Kingdom ride, which is my first uh, adventure into that. But one thing that should be noted, and, um, and I hope, you know, I feel bad about this, for your audience or for your viewers or that are in Canada is that actually none of our television shows uh, have been broadcast inside Canada on television yet. And I have no idea why, you know, we've spoken to every Canadian broadcaster um, and none of them seem to think that our content is very, uh, very useful. So if you know anyone out there at CBC or, or one of the other, you know, travel channels, make sure you let them know that this is some good stuff that you'd like to see. It's, it's almost embarrassing because to be from Canada, but to do all these, you know, great television shows that are being broadcast in the UK and, and you know, in Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, um, literally all around the world um, and not to have any exposure at all inside Canada. It's really disappointing because we're very proud Canadians and we, we really want to share our experiences with, with the Canadian viewing public. And we just haven't had that opportunity. Now, in saying that, all of our shows will come out on iTunes and, and we'll have DVDs on Amazon and books on Amazon, but we really wanted to be on television in Canada and that's still our goal. And I'm still fighting 
fighting hard for that. Ryan, tell us about the Guinness World Record that you achieved on this trip. Yes, the Guinness World Book of Records came after the fact. So at no point during the trip or in the pre-planning were we out to set a record. But about two-thirds of the way through the trip, someone wrote to us on our Facebook page or sent, sent us an email. And it was like, wow, you guys are doing like something that's never been done in the world before. And we thought, wow, yeah, maybe that's true. Because um, actually, when you look at a map, if you look at a map of Russia, you can't circumnavigate Russia. You can only really go from east to west. And Russia is the largest country in the world. Um, second largest country is Canada. You can really only go from east to west. You can't do a full circle through the Arctic. There just aren't roads. But China is actually one of the few countries where you can do a full cir circumnavigation from, you know, from southeast to northeast to northwest to southwest and back again. Um, and we and we thought, wow, we're actually, you know, doing a super long distance in just one country. And I wonder if there's even a category for something this ridiculous. So we contacted the Guinness people um, after we did our trip and we explained to them what we did. And they're like, yeah, this is amazing. You know, do you guys have, you know, GPS waypoints and hotel bills and gas bills? And the due diligence they do was, was pretty ridiculous. Um, we had to basically show them that we were in all these places that we really were. Um, and, uh, and we did that and we had all, you know, sign affidavits and things like that. And we had our guides and, and people who helped us along the way, um, also get contacted and, um, and yeah, they awarded us with the longest continuous motorcycle journey within a single country without backtracking or overlapping. Wow. That's fabulous. So that was, um, that was how the Guinness thing came about. Can you describe the China motorcycle scene for us? Are they riding for pleasure? Is it strictly transportation? What is it like from their perspective? Well, this is, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, in China, the majority of Chinese people would ride a motorcycle uh, as a commuting vehicle or as a work vehicle. So if you have to, you know, if you have to haul something to work, you, you put it on your bike. Um, you know, if you can't afford a car, you buy a motorcycle. Uh, this is This is kind of the the mentality at the moment in China. So, you know, the cities are full of motorcycles and scooters, but they're usually um, 100, 125, 150 uh, cc kind of urban commuting motorcycles. This is, um, this is kind of the common practice. So when, when, we, when you want to go out and buy a bigger bike, um, you know, a 400, a 600, an 800, a 1,000 cc uh, motorcycle, they're just not available uh, in the local market, which means you have to import one. And of course, you can you can get, you know, a Yamaha, you can get a you know a Tenere, you can get a Ducati, um, you know, Multistrada, you can get a BMW GS, you can get all these bikes available now in China, but they come with a 100% luxury tax, which means that 14,000 Canadian dollar you know BMW GS that you saw in the shop is now actually going to be 28,000. Canadian dollars in China and they, the Chinese government does that to protect the local motorcycle market and they also do this in the car industry so because of those super high prices uh, most people still use the smaller commuting motorcycles and, and because of that you don't get a lot of touring in China among Chinese people you don't get a lot of people um, traveling from one city to another or from one province to another it's a lot of just kind of inner city commuting so the lifestyle aspect of riding motorcycles is very new to China still. You are riding an F800GS. Um, how do the Chinese view that bike when they see you riding that? 
Yeah, I think um, the you know it's first of all it's a huge bike. It's the tallest bike that BMW makes. Um, it's the highest seating position. It's the highest suspension. It's the highest everything. So and I like that because I'm about I'm about six foot three. Uh, so it works perfectly for me. But you know you're a giant. You know you come up you come up next to a, a little Honda or Yamaha commuter bike that's you know a little 125 cc, and and uh, your bike is you know three times the size. Um, and, and so, you know, you can shock people, but everyone always comes up and, you know, gives you the thumbs up or, or, um, and the BMW brand is very well known here in China because of their cars. Um, and the German, the German, uh, manufactured things are quite kind of well known here as well for being very high quality. So when people come up beside you, they see the BMW, they know that number one, you paid a hundred percent luxury tax for that bike. So they're quite impressed. <laughs> um, but also they, they, you know, they definitely aspire to to having better um, better motorcycles, bigger motorcycles. But I'm not sure when that will that when that'll really take off. I read in a trip report once that um, in China, or at least certain areas in China, motorcycles weren't allowed on the highway because mainly they're small bikes and they can't keep up with traffic. Is that still the case? Yes, that is still the case, and this is actually one of the things that makes riding motorcycles in China very unfortunate. So um, in China you can't ride a motorcycle on the highway. So if, for example, if you wanted to go from Toronto to, you know, London, Ontario, you get on the 401, you know, QEW, you work your way. So those options are not available in China with a motorcycle. You'd have to use back roads. There'd be stoplights. There would be lots of traffic, um, all this kind of stuff. And then China actually has this brilliant network of brand new highways uh, that they've been spending the last 20 years building because this country's infrastructure is, is world class, and um, and they're all toll roads and they're all like four lanes and they just go everywhere and they're beautiful, um, but they don't allow motorcycles. And, and you're right, it's because 99.9% of motorcycles in China are still the 125cc urban commuter version. And having those on a highway with a whole bunch of, you know, BMWs and Volkswagens that are going 120 kilometers an hour uh, is just way too dangerous. So this this whole concept of having a real motorcycle that can do, you know, 120 kilometers an hour on a highway with a car in a safe, you know, in a safe environment still hasn't really caught on here yet. And and that's made it quite hard, you know, for myself in Shanghai. Shanghai is a city of 25 million people, and if you want to go out for a bike ride, you know, on the weekend, you know, the best way to get out of any city is just jump on the highway. Um, but that's, that's not available. So you end up slogging your way through, you know, back roads and back alleyways, you know, for the first two or three hours. And then finally you get out to some open roads or some hills or, you know, some twisties up in the, up in the mountains. Um, but you got to slog through that two, three hours, which would, which would otherwise be a 20 minute ride on a highway. Um, and that, that kind of, makes you angry after a while so it kind of lessens the excitement a little bit these are some incredible adventures that you're doing and obviously a lot more to come you must be learning loads about life in general while you're doing it what do you like to pass on from that um yeah i think you know i think one of the great things about what i've learned that i can share with other people is is um you know don't be afraid to maybe live differently um don't be afraid to travel. Don't be afraid to live in another country. Um, you know, and, and, and don't be afraid to, to kind of really put yourself out there. I think, 
all great rewards come from risk. And, um, you know, at different stages in our lives, we have different ability to handle risk or, or absorb risk. Um, you know, when you're 21 years old and you're fresh out of university, you can absorb a lot more risk than if you're 40 and you have a wife and kids and all these kinds of things. But, but I think one of the messages, and especially to, to young Canadians, um, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of same way I grew up is, is we grow up in a very safe environment and, and we're, we're blessed with healthcare and, and, you know, decent jobs and things like that. And, and I think that, you know, Canadians are, are in a very good position to go out and explore the world. Uh, once they're educated and and I just challenge everyone out there to go out and and challenge your perceptions of a place um, you know go to India because you've heard it's not nice but you know go and see it for yourself don't don't take anyone else's um, you know judgments and pass them on as your own until you've seen things you know with your own eyes and and I think the world would be a bit of a better place if, I, if everyone could do that I would uh, definitely knock down a lot of stereotypes and and things like racism and the more I explore the world uh, the more questions I have, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know so much about all these places, but actually the more I travel in India, the more questions I have about India. And that really humbled me. I, there's never a point where it's like, oh, yes, I'm an expert now about this country. Um, but this constant kind of asking questions and answering them um, really is an exciting way to live life. And and, um, and we just hope we can get more people out exploring the world. Where can people find out more about what you do? Um, the best way for people to find out what I do is is to find me on Facebook, actually. So it's uh, it's I'm just Ryan Pyle on Facebook. I've got a few hundred thousand followers. Um, to get to my Facebook page, you can visit ryanpyle.com, which is my own website. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just Ryan Pyle. And then from those, you know, from those locations, you can get to you know, if you do a search for Ryan Pyle on uh, Amazon, you'll see all the television shows and the books and things like that. But the the Facebook is the daily updated um, content where you can see when I'm in Germany with, you know, with BMW or whether I'm in London doing an event or we're doing an event in Toronto or, or whatever. And now, basically, my life is just kind of compartmentalized between two phases. One is planning and, and promotion and the other is actually executing the show, you know, being in the field. And um, when I'm not actually out on the road doing something, I'm usually talking about it or uh, with an audience. So, for example, in March, I was in Toronto, Canada, and we did, you know, because we hadn't been on television in Canada, I really wanted to show my show my television show to to an audience. So we rented a theater at the University of Toronto, and we had 400 people come out to watch the Middle Kingdom ride at the University of Toronto in the theater that we rented. And everyone paid like five bucks, um, you know, to to cover the cost of the theater, and and I didn't get any you know funds out of it. And we what we did was we watched about an hour and a half of our two and a half hour show. We watched episodes one through four, but then we didn't show everyone how it ended. Uh, and then I gave, uh, and then we had a Q and A afterwards, um, you know, for like an hour and a half, and then you know, cocktails and things like that. So you know, this is where, this is where, this is easily the most fun part of the job. It's great to ride a motorcycle in remote places and, and make the television, but sharing and connecting with the audiences um, after the fact are, are just crucial. So for anyone that wants to come out. Uh, to see me talk, you know, you can definitely follow me on Facebook because all the events and all the pictures and stuff and, and the planning is all all up on Facebook. I've been speaking with Ryan Pyle. You can find out more about Ryan by checking out our show notes and we have the links there to his Facebook page and his website as well. Very interesting guy. He's got a lot going on. you got to check out his TV shows. 
Well, that wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I want to thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Go to iTunes and give us a rating. Drop by our website. Give us some feedback. Post something on Facebook. Spread the links around. Spread the word. Get other people listening to it. Make a donation. Go to our website. Hit the donation button. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Grant Johnson for that chain adjustment piece for our tech talk. That was great. Drop by his website at horizonsunlimited.com and check out that. It's the absolute best website for motorcycle adventure travel. You won't find a place where there's more information, better organized, in one website. Period. Oh, yeah. When you go to the Horizons Unlimited website, check out the events, the HU events, because there's still some going on this year. You don't want to miss that. Don't miss your opportunity for this year, if you're in North America anyway, to uh, attend one of those events. You'll definitely want to drop by next week because next week we're going to have Simon and Lisa Thomas part two on. Don't miss that. What a great couple to listen to. We got a bunch of other stuff coming up for you. Now get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveler, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 